I'm Emily, and this is part of my story. Addiction is really ugly. I think I was probably an alcoholic from the first time I drank. Um, I think I had my first blackout. I was probably 12 or 13. I discovered meth, methamphetamine. And um, by the time I was 17, I was a full-on addict. I surrounded myself with people who were also in a really dark place. And I found myself surrounded by people who did wicked things. Uh, wicked things to make money, to obtain drugs, wicked things to make drugs, wicked things to sell drugs. My life was like one crisis after another and I couldn't figure out how to get out, really. I was trying to master my addiction to get, you know, good at it. <laughs> um, this went on for about 20 years. I guess you could say somehow though I was a functioning addict, I held a job, and in fact, it, you know, I had my own house. Somehow through this whole process, I had two children. And I had a friend of mine that would invite me to church. <laughs> and she, um, she would invite me every Sunday and I would um, I'd say, oh yeah, I'll go, you know, why not? You know, I wasn't a believer. Uh, and I would go to church with her sometimes. I mean, she'd show up at my house and either I was strung out or hung over or something like that. So I'd say, oh, maybe next week. <laughs> but I started going with her. And I finally gave up. I gave in. And I found myself on my face <laughs> at the front of that church just crying out to God. I give up. I give in. I can't do it. I need you. And Christ came into my life in a very powerful way. God would give me visions during worship. <laughs> visions of um, a home for women. That um, I would be able to help someone else find freedom. That this miracle is not just for you, Emily. This is for other people too. I had, I had no training. I had no experience. You know, I had no had no money. <laughs> so oh, it must be from God because, it, you know, in my, in my own ability, it was impossible. One thing after another, um, it all came together. And now we have The Way Home for Women. The Way Home for Women is a faith-based, sober living home for women. Women come to us from all kinds of different places, probation, parole, jail, detox. So what we do in sober living is we facilitate a new lifestyle. Every lady has an individualized treatment program depending on what she needs, but they are required to do five hours of programming per week. So some of the ladies are working with other organizations like North Range or like First Alliance, something like that. They're taking classes like relapse prevention or anger management. Man, I wish I could describe it. It's just the most beautiful thing to see. It's like the darkness falls away and these women, they become like God created them to be. And the transformation in many cases is, is quick, like 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. People are barely recognizable. I watch them, you know, if, if I succeed in two things, I would hope that I could introduce these ladies 
to the love of Christ, that they would even begin to sort of understand how much Jesus loves them and that they would begin to be able to hear from God, you know, that they would be able to hear from the Holy Spirit because truly, if you've got those two things, everything else is going to fall into place because underneath all the ugliness of addiction and all the shame and all the guilt and the hideous things it does to your body and to your life, underneath all of that is just a beautiful woman that God created. You know, she's in there. She's always in there. And I, I will never stop. I will never stop helping ladies to find the power of Christ that exists within them. So now that's what I'm hooked on, <laughs> is seeing people set free. Because I don't think that God created anybody to be an addict. There is always hope. Amen. What an amazing story. Uh, wow. I love Emily. I love the ministry she's involved in her heart and her compassion, um, really being for our city by helping um, women who are battling addiction. She is changing people's stories, which is what we as a church are all about. And it's what our For the City and Beyond vision is all about, right? Changing people's stories. You know, speaking of our For the City and Beyond vision, I'm super excited about something happening um, next week. We will be officially welcoming into this 15th Street facility our Christ Community International Congregation, which is a congregation of refugees who have fled from horrible circumstances in Burma. This congregation is one of only seven Karini churches in the entire United States. So next week, they'll be um, beginning having their worship, their ch church services at this campus in our fireside room at 11 o'clock every Sunday. We're going to have a little prayer for them at the start of the, the message next week. But I mean, we all know, we all know that the refugee situation um, is huge in the news right now um, with lots of differing opinions. And it's, it's just, it's awesome to be a part of a church that is intentionally loving refugees in our community. Um, we're also helping host the Global Refugee Center um, banquet, which is uh, this weekend at Zoe's. So Thank you for being a church. Thank you for being a congregation that is wanting to love the refugees that are in our community. Okay, so it is Super Bowl Sunday, Super Bowl weekend, I should say, and no one is wearing orange, right? Um, uh, pretty different than last year. Um, I think we all can agree that this season didn't really meet our expectations as Bronco fans. You know, expectations are a really interesting thing in terms of how they impact our lives. Just the other day, I was in a bunch of meetings, and, um, and I realized I needed some lunch, and so, so I quickly drove to Taco John's, for their Taco Tuesday special, 79 cent tacos, right? And I went through the drive-thru and I ordered my three tacos and the lady said, that'll be $2.57. Yes, cheap lunch, okay. So, so when I get up to the window, the, the gal there said, hey, you don't, you don't owe anything because the person in front of you paid for yours. 
I said, well, that's great. That's really nice. Thanks. Did, did they know me or something? You know? And she said, no, no, no. It's just something that's kind of been happening in the line today. So for about three seconds, I really, really enjoyed that gift. And then I thought, well, if other people are doing this, am I supposed to? And so I looked in my rearview mirror, hoping there wouldn't be a car there, um, but there was a big truck. Um, and I'm thinking things like, you know, I wonder what he ordered. Um, and I wonder if this girl at the counter knows I'm a pastor. And I wonder if I'd be a schmuck if I just drove away with my free lunch. Um, and so finally I said, well, well, how much is the guy's order behind me? Um, and she laughed. She said, well, it's a little bit more than yours. This is 847. So, so I'm thinking, great, because someone was nice to me, I'm going to end up paying four times more for my lunch. What a deal, right? What a deal. I was not a cheerful giver at that moment, but, uh, you know, but I totally caved and I handed her my credit card, not out of the kindness of my heart, not, not at all. It was because of the expectation I felt in the moment. I mean, expectations are a really powerful influence in our lives. How many marital arguments ultimately boil down to expectations? I expected you to like football, right? I expected you to clean up the dishes like my dad did when I grew up. I, you know, I expected you to pick up your clothes and on and on and on. Our expectations impact our relationships and our emotions and our level of joy. Expectations are huge in so many facets of our lives, including our spiritual lives. Whether we realize it or not, all of us have expectations that we place on God. How we think he will or he should respond to our circumstances. And, and those expectations, when, when unmet, can cause some significant angst and, and turmoil and, and confusion in our lives. So, so how do we respond when God doesn't meet our expectations? That's the question that we're looking at today as we continue our walk through the book of Luke. If you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Now, just to set the context here, Jesus has been doing some amazing miracles, and so word is spreading, a word about him is spreading throughout the whole region. Everyone is talking about Jesus, which brings us to verse 18, where we read, John's disciples told him about all these things. Okay, so who is John. He's kind of mentioned out of the blue, but he actually were introduced to him earlier in the book of Luke. Um, we discover who he is. In chapter one, Luke chapter one, we, we learn about a godly couple, an older couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were well beyond childbearing years. But one day, an angel appeared to Zachariah and told him that his wife will have a son and that he is to name him, that they are to name him John. And the angel also says that John, this John, will, will be great in the sight of the Lord and will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So, so John's birth is a miracle. I mean, two AARP members starting a family is a bit unusual, okay? A bit out of the ordinary. So then in chapter three, Luke picks up the story of John and he describes how John, now fully grown, it, it began preaching this message of repentance and, and forgiveness of sins. And, and he didn't pull any punches. He was a fiery preacher. So here's a small taste of, of his preaching. John said to the crowds coming to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from his coming, from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I mean, how's that for warming the crowd up, you know? 
Um, but many people responded. Many, many were, people were baptized by John. He had this very powerful ministry. In fact, I want us to look for just a moment at how Jesus himself describes John's ministry in the middle of the passage that we're looking at today. Look with me at verse 24. We're jumping a little bit here, but this is in the middle of the passage. It's important to know who John is, okay? Jesus is talking. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. He's quoting from the Old Testament here. Who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, and then Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Okay, so Jesus, in talking about John, says he is the prophet that God, that was foretold in the book of Isaiah, who would prepare the way before Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus gives the highest praise to John, calling him the greatest among uh, those born of women. John was this amazing servant and prophet of God, which brings us back here to the verse we began with a moment ago. Now we kind of know who John is. Verse 18. John's disciples told him, John, about all these things, about all the, the, the things that Jesus was doing, raising the dead and healing the sick. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now this is a really interesting question. Why would John... After hearing about all the miracles Jesus is doing, why would John question whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the answer to that is found earlier in the book of Luke in chapter 3, verse 19. We have this really important piece of information. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. See, John is in prison because of his preaching. Apparently, he included in his sermon, his sermons, specific material, calling out King Herod for the many immoral activities he was involved in. And Herod didn't like that very much, and so he threw John in prison. That's where John is when he hears from his disciples this news about all that he is doing. That's why he didn't go himself and talk to Jesus. He had to send someone. He is wasting away in a prison cell because of his faithfulness to God. So because of that, he sends two of his, his own disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one are you the Messiah who is to come after me, or should we expect someone else? Why is John asking this? It's all about expectations. John's expectations of Jesus are not being realized. See, Jesus is doing all these amazing miracles while John is rotting in prison. And that doesn't make sense to John. If Jesus really is the Messiah, why won't he get me out of prison? It, Jesus is not fulfilling John's expectations. Now, here's the deal. There is nothing sinful about expectations, right? Expectations, they're not sinful in and of themselves, but they do color the way we view our experiences, which is what was happening to John. His understanding of God's purposes is not fitting into the reality that he's experiencing. And that causes quite a bit of doubt and confusion and, and angst, not only in John the Baptist, but also in us. I mean, what about when God doesn't meet our expectations? What about when we believe Jesus has the power to change our circumstances, but nothing seems to be happening? 
our prayers seem to go unnoticed. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm personally feeling the weight of this question um, right now. Yesterday, a, a golfing buddy of mine um, died in emergency surgery. He was 32 years old. We played every Thursday afternoon, played golf, and I, I miss him. And um, I'm just so saddened by the thought of, of not being able to hang out with him anymore. Um, right now, there is a dear woman in, um, in hospice, part of our church. She would come on Saturday nights who just has battled a horrible condition for 13 years. And she is ready to leave this earth, but her body just keeps hanging on. And, you know, the family and I were just wondering, why? God, why won't you just take her home? See, for a lot of people, and I include myself right now, God is not meeting our expectations. That's where John was as he was sitting in prison. He was struggling with his own sense of disappointment with Jesus, disappointment in Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to John's question? Well, look with me at verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. See, in Jesus' response, there are, there are a couple of things that he is urging John to do in the midst of his own disappointment. And these two things can help us as well. So first of all, he is encouraging us, he's encouraging John, he's encouraging us to look beyond our own circumstances to see God's activity. Look beyond our own circumstances to see God's activity. Jesus says to John's disciples, hey, go back and tell him what you're seeing here. The blind are receiving sight, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the gospel's being proclaimed. See, what Jesus is urging John to do in the midst of his disappointment is to realize that beyond the prison he is sitting in, God is still at work in people's lives. Beyond the prison that he is sitting in, God is still at work. Lives are being changed. People are being healed and set free. Even if John is not experiencing this right now, God is working. Often, often when God doesn't respond in our personal situations, the way that we hope he would, the way that we're asking him to, you know, the way we expect him to, when he, when he doesn't respond the way we want him to, it is very easy for us to get tunnel vision and to measure the entirety of God's activity based on what we are personally experiencing or not experiencing right now. But that is way too narrow of a window. It is way too narrow of a window. See, God urges us to open our hearts and our eyes to see God's grandeur and his glory and to see the breadth of his activity in, in other people's lives and to remember his work in our own lives, to remember the good things he has done, the blessings that he has given, the miracles that he has performed, the wonder of his forgiveness and his grace. I mean, even if he is not meeting our expectations right now, we have experienced his work in the past. 
And we can remember that. We can see and remember that. And we also can see his hand at work in the lives of other people around the world. I mean, the stories of God's activity, if you get outside of just kind of mainstream news and you, you start to hear what's happening in, in places around the world, in terms of the church, and in terms of God's, what God is doing, I mean, the stories of his activity around the world are astounding. I mean, Muslims are coming to Christ through dreams and visions. They have dreams and visions of Jesus, and they're coming to him, and Jesus is appearing to them. They're, they're coming to faith. and I mean, it's just amazing story. So, so, so the, the reality is God is at work in the world. He is still accomplishing his purposes, even when it doesn't seem to fit into our desires and our plans. It doesn't seem to fit in with these things. He is still at work. He is still accomplishing his purposes. So John, or Jesus urged John to look beyond his prison walls, to look beyond his prison walls and realize that God is still at work even when we don't see it in our own individual circumstances. The other thing that Jesus urges John to do is to trust him, to trust him. Look again at verse 23. This is a really important verse. Jesus says, after the description of blind receive sight, all those things, then he says this, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is such a powerful and such a tender statement. Je Jesus is saying, look, look, John, I know life is not turning out the way you had hoped. I know that you envisioned your calling to look very different than sitting in a prison. I get that. And I just want you to know that I'm still at work and you can trust me. Don't let your disappointment turn into offense. That's what he's saying here. See, that's what this word stumble, it mean, that's what it means. It means to be offended by. When we are offended by someone, we turn our hearts away from them. Right? When we're offended by someone, we turn our hearts away from them. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, please, don't be offended by me. I'm okay. I am totally okay with you being disappointed in me. And I'm okay with you being frustrated with me. And I'm okay with you being angry at me. I'm okay with all of that. I'm big enough to handle that. But please, 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 don't turn your heart away from me. Don't close your heart to me. Trust me. I love you. Trust me. This is so huge. This is so, so important. This distinction is so important for all of us here to understand. Often, when tragedy happens in our lives, um, as Christians, when tragedy happens, when, when someone we love dies, we naturally, for, for instance, or some other tragedy, we, we naturally feel all this anger at God and this disappointment and these doubts and this confusion with him. Is this what I get for following you? You know, we, we feel all of these doubts and we have all these questions. We, we feel lost, you know, like, like the foundation of our lives is just kind <clears> of <throat> pulled out from under us. And all of that is totally normal to feel. <laughs> all of that is totally normal to feel. It is totally legitimate to feel those things. But here, here's the problem. A lot of Christians feel guilty about feeling that way. Oh, I, I can't be angry at God oh, I, I can't tell God what I really think. You know, that, 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 that's so unspiritual. And so they do what they think is the spiritual thing to do. 
just kind of stuff all that and just act like everything is okay, right? Don't acknowledge how you really feel towards God. Just keep saying the right things about him, but don't acknowledge what you really feel. Now, that may, while that may seem to work for a while, here, here's what inevitably happens. We gradually begin to close our heart towards God. See, there, there is this disconnect between what we're verbalizing to everyone and to God and what we're privately feeling. There's this disconnect, and it's, honestly, it starts to feel fake. We don't really believe it. We're saying it, but we've got this disconnect. And it's at this point that many people, after a while of this, they just throw in the towel on their Christianity. They don't want to pretend anymore. They don't want to act like everything is well when in their hearts they're filled with doubts and anger and questions. You see, they, they, and this is the sad part is they think their only option as a Christian, their only option is just to give up, to give up their faith. So they do. But there is another option, one that we see throughout the Psalms, one that Jesus actually encourages here in this passage. It is to come to Jesus with your questions. It is to come to Jesus with your anger and your doubts and your frustrations. Yell at him, scream at him, tell him how you really feel. He is big enough to handle that. He wants the real you, not a fake. He wants your heart. You have permission from him to feel what you feel and to express it to him. You have permission to do that. Now, here's what makes this so powerful. When you do that, it may feel uncomfortable at first, but when you do that, your heart is still open to God. You're not turning away from him. Your heart is still open to him. You are running to him with all of this anger and frustration rather than turning away from him, rather than being offended by him. Do you see the difference? It's so important. I mean, the Psalms are filled with this. David, where are you, God? What are you doing? You know, I mean, just this, it's this open heart towards God, which is what Jesus wants us to have. When we do that, then, then we aren't offended by him. Our hearts are open to him. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are many of us here, and I'm, I'm right in this category, you know, who are in, in a place of pain today. And we're just in this place of struggle uh, maybe you lost a spouse or a child or a friend in death, or, or maybe one of your children is just not walking with the Lord, or maybe you're battling some disease or some difficult circumstances. And, and in this place of difficulty, you and I, you have a very important choice in front of you. And here's the deal. It is not a choice. Please hear me. It is not a choice between feeling angry at God or pretending you don't. That's not the choice that I'm talking about. The choice you and I have is between running to God with all of our emotions and doubts and questions or running away from God, closing our heart to him. See, Jesus says, blessed are those who, in the midst of disappointment with me, are not offended by me. That they keep running to me and trusting me. 
I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, the moment our youngest son was born, and, and we immediately knew something was, something was very wrong. He was um, unresponsive. The medical personnel immediately kind of jumped into action, and, and that began for us this, this decade-plus-long journey of desperately trying to figure out how we could help our son. Um, we tried various <clears throat> supplements and multiple diets, we had hundreds of visits to different specialists and medical people, all of whom initially said in our first appointment, all of them said, oh, we can help you. We know, we, we, we know what's going on. We can help you. That, that their approach is going to work. And it, none of them did. It didn't, it didn't work. So we, we did stuff that we know fits into the category of medical quackery. I mean, we just knew it, you know, we, we were paying for it, but it didn't matter. We didn't care. We just wanted our son to be whole. We wanted him to be able to speak. In addition to all of that, I mean, we prayed like mad. We claimed verses. We had healing prayer sessions. We took him to healing prayer sessions. Hundreds of people have been and are currently praying for Joshua. We are now 16 years in, into this journey with no answers, with no significant improvement. Now, now there have been lots of blessings along the way. <clears throat> I mean, Josh is an amazing young man whose love is impacting hundreds of people, and we're just in awe of the impact he has on people, even without words. So we're, we're in awe of that. But the journey itself has been excruciating. It's been excruciating hard. And at times, God has not met our expectations. And it has made us angry and disappointed. Honestly, there have been times in the middle of the night when I have been tempted to turn away from God. But where else would I go? You know, where else would I go? So I have screamed at God. I have cussed at God. I have freely expressed my anger to him. And by his grace, I've kept running to him. And, and here's, here's what is so fascinating. In, in the midst of this journey, Raylene and I have experienced Jesus in deeper ways than we could have ever imagined. I say, I wonder if that's part of the blessing Jesus is talking about here. In verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Who, 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 you know, who, who is not offended by me, but who, who chooses to run to me, even when they don't understand, even when they're angry, they run to me. Blessed, there's blessing there in keeping your heart open to me, even when I'm not meeting your expectations. That's what Jesus is saying. So see, when we choose, when we choose to bring our anger our doubts and our questions, our frustration to God, when we, you're keeping our hearts open to him, our intimacy with Jesus grows because, and this is a whole other sermon, but because we're sharing in his sufferings, which is a huge theme in the New Testament, this, the fellowship of sharing in suffering with Jesus because he suffered for us. And so I, I just want to encourage all of us here, no matter what we're going through, to keep running to Jesus rather than being offended by him. As we talked about last week, keep asking for healing. Keep praying for you, all of those things. Yes, yes, yes. And if that's not happening, continue running to him with your anger and frustration because you just keep running to him rather than letting your heart become offended by him and turning away. Now, near the end of this passage, 
So in the middle, Jesus talks about John the Baptist. So we're doing this whole passage, but we're kind of doing it a little um, in a different order. So after that section, then Jesus goes into this whole section about John, which we read earlier. At the, near the end of the passage, Jesus gives a specific example of a group of people whose expectations of God led them to be offended by him. They turned their heart away. And, and so I want us to look now, jumping down to verse 29, where Jesus has just been describing John the Baptist greater than anyone else ever born of, of a woman, John the Baptist. And then he says, then, then we read this, verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. See, in, in his comments here, it's very clear. Jesus is specifically addressing the experts in the law, right? The experts in the law, the religious leaders. These men, these Pharisees, had postured themselves as the official determiners of God's rule, rules and activities, right? The official judges of what's right, what you could do on the Sabbath, what you couldn't do. I mean, they, they were the official judges, right? So when John the Baptist comes along, from the wilderness, eating locusts and all that stuff. Kind of a weird guy. He, he comes preaching this message of repentance and all that stuff. These religious leaders, they dismiss John the Baptist by saying he has a demon. He's just weird. But then Jesus comes along, right? Jesus comes along, and in his ministry, he starts hanging out with, he doesn't go out in the wilderness, he starts hanging out with tax collectors and with sinners and prostitutes and, 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 and going to parties and drinking and all that stuff. And these experts accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. See, he, did, he didn't, Jesus didn't fit their expectations of what God looked like, of how a Messiah, a proper Messiah ought to behave. So they positioned themselves as critics. This is about being offended by. They, 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 they positioned themselves as, as critics, closing their heart to God's very own Messiah. Now, folks, there is a very clear warning here. There's a very clear warning here for us and our society as a whole. And it relates to what we think of Jesus um, for anyone, what they think of Jesus. It's, it's kind of vogue. It's kind of um, 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 in vogue these days to be cynical, right? I mean, it just sort of is. To be critical and skeptical of anything and everything, right? Just cynicism is kind of in vogue now. And so initially cynicism feels good, right? It feels freeing because we can kind of posture ourselves above the fray, you know, not really committing ourselves to anything. So there's a, there's an appeal to it, but the, there's a dark side to cynicism. Cynicism here, here's what it does. Cynicism, eventually it closes our heart to truth. Cynicism eventually closes our heart to truth. See, initially being cynical enables us to see through certain things, right? Politicians, oh, we can see what they're doing. And the church, oh, blah, blah, you know, the church is horrible. You know, we do cynicism, we're cynical about everything. Politicians, the church, and all this stuff. It causes us to initially see through certain things. But the problem is, eventually, cynicism causes us to see through everything. We're cynical about everything. And when you're cynical about everything, life loses its meaning. 
because nothing has value. Nothing is true. So when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, and I'm talking to people, maybe you've not come to church in a long time or you don't even believe in Jesus, all this, but when you're looking at Jesus here, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we need to be really careful that cynicism doesn't creep in and close our hearts to truth. So what's the answer if we feel like cynicism is beginning to take a greater hold on us? Well, Jesus tells us the answer. Look again at verse 35. He says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. See, the antidote to cynicism is wisdom. It's, it's, it's wisdom. It is to look at life through the lens, not of just being a cynical of everything. It's to look at life through the lens of wisdom. What is wise? What, what, is, what is proving to be true? Um, when you do that, when you look through the lens of wisdom, you can honestly evaluate, for instance, who Jesus is. By looking at the wisdom of his life, look at the wisdom of his teaching. See, wisdom acknowledges the possibility of God and, and, and it seeks to discover him. So if you're a skeptic here, if you're a cynic or maybe you weren't one, but now you're becoming one, well, I, I'm glad you're here, honestly. If, if, you're, if you kind of put yourself in that cynical category of religious stuff or of Jesus or whatever, I encourage you to honestly examine Jesus for yourself. And the book of Luke would be a great place to begin. Luke was a physician who interviewed dozens and dozens of eyewitnesses. His book is a detailed eyewitness account of Jesus' life. Um, and so look at his life. Not through the lens of a cynic. Look at it through the lens of wisdom. Is there wisdom here? Now, some, some of you will say, not some of you, maybe some in our society, people will say, and I understand that, people will say, oh, the disciples made up all these accounts. Right? I mean, Luke, Matthew, Mark, they're just, they're just made up. Hundreds of years later, they, they're made up. They, they, did, they just, after Jesus died, they kind of just went back and sort of created this larger-than-life legend and called him Jesus. That's certainly an option to believe, but the more I read these biblical accounts of Jesus, the more convinced I am that no one could have made this guy up. No one. <laughs> No one could have made this guy up. He is so unpredictable. He says things that are so counterintuitive. Everyone's kind of baffled most of the time. Like, what? You know, I mean, just, he, he, no one could make him up. In fact, one of the statements that is found earlier in this chapter where, where Jesus does this is when he's describing John in verse 28. This is a great example of this. Verse 28. We read the first part of this. I tell you that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. We already read that. But then look at the next part of the sentence. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What? I mean, really, I mean, you've just talked about how great John the Baptist is, but now you say that the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Who says stuff like this? No one could make this up. <laughs> no one could make this up. Jesus really happened. And he offers us a relationship with him that's way beyond our expectations of him. And it's found in this verse here. What, what he's saying in the verse we just read is that John the Baptist was great because of how he prepared the way for Jesus. But now that Jesus is here and has given his life on the cross, sinners like you and me can experience what John could only speak about in future tense. A relationship with God that is based upon Jesus' work, not ours. A relationship that is based totally upon love and forgiveness and joy and grace because of what Jesus has done, past tense. See, the greatest sinner 
And you may feel like the greatest sinner. The greatest sinner, the one who is farthest from God, can experience what John hadn't yet experienced. An intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, the crucified, resurrected one, living in them. The greatest sinner can experience what John, what John hadn't yet experienced. That includes all of us here. We can experience Jesus in this way. See, the, the, let me just say it right here. This Jesus, as we've seen, he doesn't, and we've always experienced, this Jesus doesn't always fit our expectations, but he always keeps his promises. You can trust him. You can trust him. We can trust him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Jesus, you're just kind of amazing. You don't fit into any categories. Your words, they just stand for themselves. And thank you for helping us try to understand here what you're saying. And I thank you. I thank you that even when you don't meet our expectations, you encourage us to run to you with our hearts open to bring to you our, our doubts and our questions and our confusion and our disappointment, just to bring them to you. You're big enough to handle that. And so I want to pray, first of all, I want to pray for anyone here, Lord, who, who maybe they have thought, oh, I can't say what I really feel because that would feel so unspiritual. I can't say that I'm really angry at God right now because that just wouldn't, you know, I don't know what people would think or what God would think. I pray for anyone in that, in that situation right now that they would discover the freedom of running to you with an open heart and just owning what, having permission to own, from you to own their feelings and to express them to you. And so I want to pray for that, for any of us here that we would just kind of step into this new place, even if it means locking ourselves in a room and screaming at God. It's okay to do that. He wants your heart. So I pray for the freedom to open our heart to you, even in the midst of profound disappointment and grief and loss. We would open our heart to you and run to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we do that, we would grow in our trust of you, just trusting you. Even when we don't understand what you're doing or your purposes, we would trust you in deeper ways and that our relationship with you would continue to grow even and especially in the midst of our suffering. And I want to thank, I thank you too, Lord, for this amazing statement that we just read. This amazing statement. that the least in the kingdom is greater than John because of this privilege we have to experience you in a way that John the Baptist hadn't experienced you. To experience you as our Savior who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and now experience you living in us. Wow. The least in the kingdom, the greatest sinner can experience you in that way. And I want to just, I want to give an invitation here. 
There may be some of you here and you feel light years from God. Maybe you think you're the greatest sinner. You've messed up so bad and God could never forgive you and all that stuff. It's not true. No matter what you have done, no matter how great your sin in your own mind or in God's heart, no matter how great your sin, you can experience what John the Baptist hadn't experienced. You can experience Jesus forgiving your sin and coming to live in you forever, a love relationship with Jesus living in you. And that's available to you right now. So I want to just give an invitation. If there's anyone here and you want to enter into this relationship Jesus was describing, I invite you to pray along with me in the silence of your heart where you can articulate your faith, declare your faith in Jesus, ask him to forgive your sin, and welcome his presence into your life forever. So pray with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are whole, perfect, complete, and I'm not. I'm a mess. I've done things, many things I know that are not pleasing to you. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. And I realize that sin separates me from you. But I don't want to be separated from you. And I realize there is nothing I can do, no matter how hard, how hard I try to get to you and to pay for my sin. There's nothing I could do. And, the, and that's why you came to me. You sent your son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. And then, Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for all of my mess-ups, all of my failures, all of my sin. You paid for all of it. The ultimate sacrifice for me. Thank you. And I choose right now to place my trust not in my effort, not in my goodness, not in my, in not, nothing in me. I place my whole trust in you. Jesus, I bring you my faults and my questions and my fears and my doubts and all of that. I just bring it all to you and I place it on your shoulders, Jesus. And now in exchange, I receive your life. I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come live in me. The Spirit of Jesus to come live in me, changing me from the inside out through the power of your love. So God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. I pray that they would grow in their relationship with you. And if that's you, if you prayed that prayer, please tell someone before you leave today. Tell someone. I don't think it's too late to jump into our Alpha course on Wednesday night, a great way to begin growing in this relationship. So I just pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, help them grow in you. And I pray for all of us here. Yeah, we would, we would keep running to you, Jesus, as this amazing Savior who has forgiven our sin. We would not forget what you have done for us. We love you so much. Even when you don't meet our expectations, we want to keep running to you and praising you and worshiping you because you are worthy of that. You are worthy of that. We love you, God. So we're going we're gonna to respond now to the word and to who Jesus is by singing songs of worship to him. So why don't we stand? The worship team's going to lead us in a, a few minutes of praise. And this is our opportunity just to open our heart. We've heard a bunch of stuff. Now we get to open our heart to Jesus. So Jesus set us free to do that. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Set us free to worship you, Jesus. We love you.